The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, April the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me today are Jack Horgan-Jones and Jennifer Bray from our political staff. And we were planning today to discuss the very in-depth piece which Jen wrote a couple of days ago about Fianna Fáil's problems, and we are going to come to that in a little while. But first, we really do have to take account of the fact that this has been a very bad week so far for the government's COVID policy. Um, We're going to come to the problems with vaccines in a minute. But Jen, you told us last week about what you described at the time as the hot mess over the mandatory hotel quarantine for international travellers. And it seems a bit hotter and a bit messier at this stage. Yeah, exactly. And and I I did describe it as that. Now it's more like an exploding clown car or, you know, a volcanic disaster. Because if you remember um, what we talked about this two weeks ago, we talked about this last week and now we're talking about it again. And that just shows you the fact that this thing... Um, obviously was not fully thought through, which was the whole point all along of the criticisms and the problems, et cetera, et cetera. So two weeks ago, the debate was, you know, Stephen Donnelly meets Simon Coveney. Who's going to win? Is it going to be Simon Coveney expressing his concerns about logistical issues and legal issues? Or is it going to be Stephen Donnelly with his public health advice in his hand? Uh, Last week, it was kind of down to the officials to try and find a way to work through this. And you remember we talked about how that didn't go very well at all. Um, And uh, five departments expressed concern at that meeting that basically the plan was not ready and that we didn't have enough space and and a whole host of other issues. Um, And now we see, and after that, after the countries were added, which we also discussed, um, there was kind of a narrative almost of, and it, it played out over that weekend, over kind of um, current affairs shows over the weekend, people talking about who won. Was it Stephen Donnelly? Was it Simon Coveney? It was clearly Stephen Donnelly. And this, I think one commentator said it was a victory that he very much needed, given kind of all the criticism he's been taking in his department in the last couple of months. Um, and then if you fast forward now, what happened yesterday was that it emerged that people were trying to book on the online portal for mandatory hotel quarantine, um, people coming from America or different countries, and they couldn't. And what they found was the only space that was available was from next Monday onwards. Um, so myself and Jack, Jack leading the charge there, uh, tried to get to the bottom of what was going on all through yesterday afternoon. Um, was it paused? Was the, was the system full? What was happening? And all we were being told really was that there's a significant announcement coming and that there was real trouble behind the scenes. Um, so as we know then, it, it, it we, we discovered that it was indeed paused. The system was paused. Now, if we take, if we take a step, step back for a minute, what you'll be told, the spin that will be put on this is that, you know, this was a precautionary uh, measure, which is what Stephen Donnelly said on the 6-1 News last night. And this is just something they were doing in case they get to the full capacity and they needed to keep a certain amount of rooms for walk-ins. And walk-ins are people who arrive into the country um, to mandatory hotel quarantine without having made a booking, which technically should not be possible because you're supposed to not be able to get on the plane if you don't have that booking. But it's happening uh, up to 12 a day. And, you know, what we were told is that we're keeping those spaces for the next couple of days uh, just for to keep that capacity there. But like, I think we should call a spade a spade here. The capacity isn't there. That's why it has been paused. You don't pause a system and not allow any other bookings. 
just in case maybe something happens in a couple of days' time. You pause it because you're nearing capacity and you know that if you don't, people are going to fly into the country, they're going to turn up in arrivals and they're not going to be led into mandatory hotel quarantine because there's not going to be any space. And the way it was put to me was, not only is this a major logistical mess up, but it's a legal problem because if you arrive into the country and you're standing in the arrivals hall and you are legally mandated because you've come from a high-risk country to go into those hotels but you can't because it's full, what is the state's obligation then? Do they have to send you home? Do they have to pay for your flight home? Do they just let you go? Um, And what if there were legal cases taken on that basis? And we know there's already a raft of cases. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Um, Now, Stephen Donnelly has said that there will be a a large increase in hotel rooms from next Monday and the Monday afterwards. And I heard Eamon Ryan this morning, the Minister for Transport, I think on his way into Cabinet, saying that they might have to accelerate that But like the the whole point all along of the concerns that were raised was that we don't have space. There are logistical issues. We're not ready. This isn't thought through. And I think now we're seeing that those concerns have been borne out effectively. And that's that's where we're at today. Yeah, Jack, I mean, I got a bit of feedback um, to last week's podcast. I mean, we always like to get feedback at politicspodcasts at irishtimes.com. And some of it was um, critical. Uh, Ian O'Mara mailed me and he said that I was arguing, he said sincerely in favour of mandatory hotel quarantine, but that basically I didn't take seriously enough some of the criticisms that were going around even at that stage about the logistics. I think we did notice them, but I think it's probably a fair point to say that we didn't dig into them as much as it's now apparent perhaps we we should have. Ian also says, can you now concede the critics of the scheme have been arguing in good faith, which I'm always happy to do, uh, that any system designed in a hurry to appease media and opposition pressure will not be a good one? I think he has a point there, doesn't he? I think he does, yeah. Um, and I think that this was something that was lurking in the background across the Easter weekend as well. Um, because as attractive, politically speaking, as the position is to say, we're following the public health advice, you know, that uh, that provides you cover for your policy action, but the policy action still has to be workable on the ground. It has to be practicable. Um, and you now have a situation where one side of government was flagging very, very, very clearly through the Department of Foreign Affairs. We have concerns for a range of reasons. They relate to industrial policy. They relate to our kind of philosophical stance towards travel. But when you boil it all all down, we have concerns about whether this is actually going to work. And you had the leader, Fine Gael, and the Tarnish to go on the news last week and say, look, there are concerns, this needs to be thought through. And nonetheless, we went ahead, we barreled ahead regardless. And it hasn't even taken very long for the system to fall over. So those concerns have been borne out. And I think that there is now a kind of real political risk. And were we kind of in non-COVID times, you would have a situation where there had been a split between government parties over an important policy question, one side had had won out and then been proven to be effectively wrong, at least in the short term, very quickly, and that would be a big political problem. And you know, so I think I think that the ramifications of this politically will be bigger if we weren't in such a crisis, but they won't be easily forgotten either as well, because we have a system in place now, which I say has fallen over very quickly, but also is predicated on a huge fall in numbers coming into the state. Otherwise, I think we'll be looking at, you know, further iterations of these de facto caps coming into place on arrival. And that's something that's really, really difficult to sell. And it's really, really difficult to sell because these aren't necessarily easy cases coming in. This is not people coming in from Benidorm. 
you know, haven't come home from holidays. There's a lot of very, very difficult, a lot of very, very difficult personal cases that are now working their way through the through the courts in a very public capacity. I was talking to a lot of embassies over the last couple of days. They're looking for clarity on questions like, you know, what happens when there's joint custodies of children between uh, between like, let's say, a, a mother who lives in France and a father who lives in in Ireland, how does that work itself out? So there's there's a lot of very difficult, very thorny issues that I think one side of government will be saying, we predicted these, we predicted the practical difficulties here and you went ahead regardless. And now we have to figure out a way to make this work all the while controlling for, uh, for variants. So it, I think it's one of the most wicked, difficult and complex problems that the government has, has, has faced in the last little while. And I don't really see any easy way out of it. Mm, it also reflects sort of underlying political patterns and currents, doesn't it? Uh, Jennifer Patley has a piece in, in the Irish Times today and he he touches on some of those. There's the, you know, these disagreements very often break down on a Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil axis, possibly because certain ministers are in certain departments or possibly because of more than that. There seems to be, there's always a frustration and a tension between government and the, the medical establishment. And Pat makes the point that since the the huge surge in cases uh, post-Christmas. Politicians have been terrified of resisting any advice that comes from uh, from Neffet or, or NIAC. Um, but when you have things like Patrick Coveney, who as well as being the CEO of one of the biggest companies in the country, is also the brother of the Minister for Foreign Affairs, who is the most prominent opponent in Cabinet of this measure, there's a sign that you know things are you know, maybe even getting a bit unstable. Is that pushing it too far? No, I think things have been unstable for a while, to be honest. Um, Maybe not perilously unstable, but definitely unstable. And I think the point you made at the beginning is actually a really interesting point and probably does explain a little bit of how it's playing out. So you were saying that is some of it politically down to the departments that they hold? Well, yeah, we think about it. The Department of Health are the ones who, you know, are getting this public health advice. You know, Stephen Donnelly's office is just a couple of uh, rooms down from, from Ronan Glynn's, you know, so they're in direct contact you know, he has the public health officials in his ear saying this is really dangerous. These countries, you know, have really high COVID cases and, and, and dangerous variants in circulation. We need to move now. This is what we need to do. This is why we set up mandatory hotel quarantine. Fine. So you've got health thinking that. Taoiseachs have to make the decision. So, of course, they are very have a, a very strong interest in making sure, like Jack says, it works on the ground. Enterprise have all the businesses leaning on them. And then you have DFA, Department of Foreign Affairs, who are dealing with all the embassies. So they all have their own pressure points. And that does play a massive part in how this is sort of um, unfolding, I suppose. And then there is also the added element of Fine Gael versus Fianna Fáil. At the very beginning of this debate, if you want to call it that, I did wonder if that was just a, too simplistic a way to look at it, you know. Um, but actually, as the two, last two or three weeks have panned out, I think that's exactly what's happening. I'll give you another example of of something that's just beginning now in this same vein. So it's this debate about vaccinated people. Should they have to go into mandatory hotel quarantine? And we had Simon Harris out on the radio yesterday afternoon saying his very strong view was that they shouldn't have to go in. Now, the cabinet had agreed last Friday in their corporeal meeting to ask the Health Protection Surveillance Centre to look at this exact issue. So to a certain degree, that was already playing out. But the way it was put to me was it's the Fine Gael ministers pushing for this. They believe it's ridiculous to have to send vaccinated people into mandatory hotel quarantine and that there are people on the Fianna Fáil side in the Department of Health who are saying, well, hold on a minute, you're saying you want vaccinated people to be able to skip quarantine. 
how do you, how do they prove they've been vaccinated? We don't have the green pass in place yet. It's not agreed between the EU member states. Are they just going to come in with their piece of card that they're given over here? Any piece of card and say, I've been vaccinated and we're just going to accept that, uh, which is a really good point. Um, and then on the Fine Gael side, I've had people kind of in the party say to me, well, you know, if we hung around to make sure everything was exactly perfect, we'd never get anything done. We should be able to come up with some kind of system. But of course, it's Department of Health who will have to take the flack for that. So you can see all the tensions playing out. There definitely is an element of Fine Gael versus Fianna Fáil. And there definitely is the element you talk about of the different departments and the pressures on them. And Jack, in the normal political run of things, this would be a huge political story that would be dominating the front pages day after day after day. But at the same time, there's another story unfolding which arguably is more significant and has more longer term implications. And that's the the difficulties which have emerged in a in a very small number of cases with blood clots arising, um, first from the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. And that's led to the cancellation of thousands of, of vaccine appointments um, this week and the restriction of that vaccine to uh, people aged, I think, between 60 and 70. And then this bombshell news from the United States yesterday evening about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is really, you know, the foundation stone of much of the later rollout of the vaccines in this country, that that was suspended by the the FDA in the States and that then Johnson & Johnson um, stopped shipping to Europe um, for the moment. Anyway, they've paused doing that. And that casts into doubt the whole set of targets for where Ireland is supposed to be in terms of vaccinations by the end of June. It does. So covering this... After the NIAC advice on AstraZeneca on, I'm losing track of my days here, but I think it was Monday night. Um, the sense that you were, that I was getting from people in the health service was, look, this is, this is a wobble. It's a bit of a short term nightmare, but it's not a disaster. We will figure out a way to model this and, and reprofile it. And if you looked at the figures of AstraZeneca coming into the country for the second quarter of the year, you could kind of see where they were getting with that because there's 813,000 doses coming in, 230,000 of those would be second doses, they were still allowed to give those. And then if you looked at the the eligible, the population still eligible for AstraZeneca, the 60 to 69s, it roughly equated to the number that was coming in. So it looked like they might be able to muddle through. The The real curveball here is, as you say, the J&J question and there's a there's a doubly complicating factor because previously when we've had delays like this they've been down to regulatory interference or at least local regulatory interference it's because the european medicines agency has said something or because the national immunization advisory committee has said something in this instance you have a commercial decision effectively a commercial decision being taken by j&j in reaction to a regulatory decision taken in another jurisdiction entirely so how do we pick our way out of that? At what point does J&J say we're going to resume our deliveries to Europe? What triggers that? Is it, a, is it a call by the US FDA? When does that call come? If and when that call comes, what does the EMA do? What does NIAC do? These are really complicated questions. I don't have the answers to them, but unless they're solved quickly, then we could be looking at having to plan for a short, medium, long-term future without J&J. As you say, that is doubly complicating for a variety of reasons because it's one shot. It's very easy to give to vulnerable populations. It's very quick to get out and it would be a real kind of workhorse. So if we have to plan without J&J substantially and with a limited kind of capacity for using AstraZeneca, that's really, I think, kind of emergency territory. And that's why I think we're starting to hear conversations about spacing doses out. 
uh, about mixing different brands of vaccine from different manufacturers. Because at that stage, you're looking at two of the four engines, if you kind of conceptualize it as a plane almost, there two of the four engines kind of only half running. And then you're wondering, how do you keep up enough speed to keep this thing in the air? How do you, how do you keep momentum in the vaccination program? And that is absolutely the most important political question facing the state at the moment. If you look at the stability program update, which is going to be uh, released today, all the presumptions in there about growth and a rebound in jobs in the economy, they are all based on the vaccine rollout going to plan. If you look at the modelling done by Philip Nolan and Neffet last week or the week before, which said we can look forward to a, to a better summer, I nearly said a meaningful summer there, watch out, but um, we can look forward to, to a better summer from the middle of May or early June onwards we can look forward to more more freedoms again it's all predicated on the vaccine without the vaccine life will be so much more noticeably different and political life for the government will be so much more difficult and we really don't know jan i'm trying to get my head around reading american media coverage overnight of the of the johnson and johnson issue and you know it 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 seems to me on my ignoramus's reading of it it could go any way this could be a temporary pause as they adjust and take stock of what this actually means and what measures for example screening out certain parts of the population who have certain health conditions or um they they need to put in place but we have no agency over it whatsoever so as jack says yet again the government here will have to suffer the consequences, including the political blows of this incredibly vital element of government policy over which it has absolutely no control. No, we're completely at the, the mercy of the fates here. And, you know, there are meetings, I know, emergency meetings, I think, of the FDA today in the US. Um, we'll see how that plays out. You know, every time we've come on this podcast to talk about vaccine issues and and the rollout it has struck me that usually hours later after recording it something new has broken or something has changed and it is almost a day-by-day thing and even like us working as um, journalists covering this like you wake up and you just have absolutely no idea what the front page is going to be tomorrow what what is going to happen at all and it's just the pace at which things are moving now because it is the largest vaccination campaign probably in the history of the globe and it the challenges, the logistical challenges, the the ethical challenges, the political challenges, the the medical challenges, everything that arises from that uh, is so vast that we're just trying to keep up with it. Um, so we'll see how it plays out in in the US. I have no idea. I think there's an anticipation in government that there will be some perhaps some kind of restrictions placed on the use of uh, the vaccines, so certain vaccines, as we've seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine will be for certain age groups, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we'll likely see that play out. And I think we'll see our vaccination schedule and campaign change a couple of times because we still have other vaccines to be approved, hopefully uh, in June. You know, we're talking about Curavac, Novavax. Um, and we still have a path to go down with those as well. So we'll see what happens. There's definitely a huge degree of impatience in, in government. Uh, they see this as just being probably one of the worst things that could have happened because they had this plan set out. Now, even the plan as we know it is super vague. We know vaguely it's personal services to reopen next month. We know kind of vaguely maybe click and collect staggered return of retail. And then perhaps this spectre in June of hotels and guest houses and who knows what in July. And as vague as that was before, it just feels that little bit more vague now, which is not what anybody wants to hear. And that is not the message they want to be giving out. Well, hence the urgency behind uh, 
the Department of Taoiseach meeting with uh, the vaccine task force before the cabinet meeting today. So like we'll find out a lot more hopefully later on today about the schedule, about the sequencing of the campaign uh, and crucially whether the government still believes it can vaccinate or offer people their first dose uh, four out of five adults by the end of June, which is tied to their very vague roadmap. So we'll, we'll hopefully find out a little bit more later on on that. So let me move on from that, because God knows we know we're going to be continuing to cover it over the next weeks and months. And of course, as you say, you're absolutely right. It's by far the most important thing in our lives and in everybody's lives. And it affects the life and death issues and all the rest of it. But I did want to talk about Fianna Fáil as well. And in fact, the fortunes of Fianna Fáil are so tied up with what we've just been talking about. And again, there they are. They have no control over how this rolls out. And their last best hope, I suppose, is for all this to go well, because nothing else seems to be going very well for them. I was wondering when I knew I was going to talk to yourself and Jack about it, as if I may say so, um, slightly younger journalists. Um, has your has your entire professional life been um, tied up with the question of what's the point of Fianna Fáil and is it going to survive? <laughs> what a question. <laughs> Just no. last week, Jen, when you were working on that piece. <laughs> that was last Friday. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, um, like my first general election was uh, 2011 and we all know what happened there. So to a certain degree, I have been watching the spiral of Fianna Fáil um, for, for a good while now. And it was really interesting, I think, writing the piece to actually take a step back and because when people talk about what's going on in Fianna Fáil and there's a lot of griping and there's a huge amount of negativity coming from the party. And we can see that, like, you know, myself and Jack will cover uh, and Cormac and Harry uh, and Pat will cover the uh, parliamentary party meetings, which we always joke, you know, we might as well be in there um, on a Wednesday night. But like it has been noticeable over the last couple of weeks, very pointed comments. And I, I, one, I one comment which kind of sparked the piece and to a certain degree was John Lahart saying, if we don't get uh, a vaccine bonus or we don't see the, the, the positive, tangible benefits of a, of a successful campaign, we need to have a conversation. And we all know what a conversation is, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's political speak for the leadership. So I think when uh, I sat down to write the piece, it was the plan was very much to ring as many people as possible uh, who are at uh, at TD level, at councillor level, at all levels of the party, current members, former members, advisors and strategists. So a good chunk of last week was um, talking to those people. And I have to tell you, it was like a dam bursting. Like I I expected people to kind of brush me off and say it was this and that. People wanted to stay on the phone for hours. It was like almost a counselling session for some people. So I'm happy to go into some of the main points if you if you want but it was really a fascinating exercise there's a lot going on in there and also not very much at all i'll come back to you about the main points of what the people were saying to you it's a great piece jack and among the things it does apart from jen talking to all those people and giving them their counseling session um it also does something which in in our trade perhaps we don't do enough is it lays out the entire story of the last 10 years the disaster of of 2011 the the unexpected rebirth of of 2016 the the general air of confidence after the local elections of 2019 and the absolute punch in the face of last year's general election and then the move into government and COVID and all that kind of stuff, which we know. And it's a it's a strange, meandering kind of a story. And people often say that political parties don't die. Um, but there, I think there is a real question for Fianna Fáil as to whether, you know, extinction, an extinction event is not impossible. 
I think that's true. Um, and actually, to go back even further uh, a little bit, as, as you remarked, myself and Jen are youthful and, and, and cherubic and, and full of energy and brio. And, and I think both of us probably started covering uh, or working journalism around the time of 2011, which was that hinge point. But like for all of our kind of youth and young adulthood from 1997 onwards, the only ruling political party that we knew was Fianna Fáil. And that, that particular mode of Fianna Fáilism that was embodied by Bertie Hearn and those governments. And prior to that, you know, Fianna Fáil to the country was, you know, the, the de facto party of government for many years. It was all things to all people. It was a remarkable political machine. And since 2011 and since the strange role it adopted in the 2016 Confidence and Supply arrangement, it has suffered, I would say, a kind of crisis of identity. What is Fianna Fáil now? What does it stand for? What is its relevance post-2011, post its, its near demise then? And I think that in that decade, since that 2011 general election, Fine Gael mo- knows what it's about to a much more meaningful extent. It helps that it's been in government for that decade, of course. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to know what you're about when you have power. But I asked a few people in Fianna Fáil this morning before the podcast, what are the problems that, that, that face the party? And one of the main ones was actually that lack of identity, a lack of clear policy focus, which is a historical issue that comes from trying to be all things to all people, particularly in a new era where people want you to be defined by specific elements. And also something that's very current is a lack of party discipline and cohesion. So I think it is it is not too far a stretch to say that, like, if not facing an extinction event at the moment, Fianna Fáil is certainly facing a defining moment where it has to say why it's relevant. It's facing a relevance event. Is it going to become the third wheel in a new system that is defined by a more kind of straightforward delineation between left and right, left defined by Sinn Féin and right uh, by, by Fine Gael, or is it going to be something else? And if it is going to be something else, if it is going to, to bounce back from the current low point it is at in, pollings, in polling, and it should be remembered that they did outperform Fine Gael in the last general election, what is going to bring it back to that? What are the parties, what are the, what are the factors, both internal and external, that can power that? Externally, yeah, if we get a vaccine bounce and if the economy comes roaring back, that will help. But also internally, where are those engines going to come from? You know, who are who are the leaders, who are the visionary leaders who are going to unite the party behind them and set out a programme for Fianna Fáil in the next decade? And I think that's one of the most important things that, they, that, they, that they're lacking at the moment is someone who might be seen as someone who can step up to the plate on that front. So Jennifer, the people you were talking to for this piece, after they'd poured out their their souls to you about their um their lives and their unhappiness, what were the sort of answers to those questions which which Jack describes there? What 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 did they think needed to be done or should be done for the party? Um, a good question. I think actually there is just like Jack said a huge identity crisis and just a lot of confusion actually within the party about that very question. Everybody has a different opinion. Uh, about what should be done. Um, but what struck me was that pretty much everybody had the same take on how they landed where they are now. And if you go back a bit, the, the way it was put to me in various different, you know, in various different ways by different people was that 
In the past, it was always either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. When one went up, the other went down. And depending on the political circumstances of the day, one would be in favour, one would be out of favour. And that changed in 2016 when the, the decision was made by Fianna Fáil to enter into the Confidence and Supply Agreement. Um, the, the party was absolutely not in favour of a grand coalition, didn't think it was viable, but was happy enough given how how much of a revival they'd experienced since 2011 to be pulling the levers from the outside to a certain degree. And that's what happened. And in the first couple of months, people were pretty happy with that. And I think by the summer of 2016, uh, according to our polling series, they hit a high point. Um, and I think that's why I picked that, that point to move onwards. And if you move through the following year's confidence and supply, obviously griping about it and, and you know, people maybe as it played out, not being all that happy, but it was the extension of the confidence and supply agreement that aggravated most TDs. And that's when they feel like Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael became completely entwined, perhaps in the mind of the voter, but certainly Sinn Féin were very masterful in painting them as one and the same establishment parties. That's when that started and they kind of really came into their own um, in opposition. So that is a key point in and an inflection point in their journey where I think some people felt there was the wrong decision to make. Now, at the time, there was the threat of a no-deal Brexit, very much on the cards, um, looming in the coming months. And Michal Martin felt that, uh, according to people who were close to him, that it would have been the wrong time to pull the plug and it wouldn't have been in the interest of the country. So basically, the gist is that it was the right thing for the country and the wrong thing for Fianna Fáil, but it was very much the wrong thing for Fianna Fáil. Um, and, you know, if we move then through... The, the following year, we had the local European elections. They did very well in the local elections. They were quite happy. You know, they retained their spot as, as the top party in local government. Um, but, and I remember covering the May local elections and going, following, I followed, I think, representative from almost every party on the doorstep and everywhere on every doorstep was housing, housing, housing. And it was just, I, I knew it was going to be an issue, but I just, I remember being shocked uh, that it was so much so. And if we... When I was talking to people about that time, they said they they actually didn't fully grasp, people in Fianna Fáil, they didn't actually fully grasp what happened. But Sinn Féin did. They didn't do great in those locals, but they took that message. They went off, they regrouped and they came back. And 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 the, certainly the feeling amongst people I talked to in Fianna Fáil was that they didn't do that. Now, to be absolutely fair and completely balanced, people who worked you know, and are much more loyal to Michal Martin say, of course, we weren't going to do a post-mortem on an election that we did really well in. And actually, I think that's a really good point. But at the same time, there was clearly something happening. There was a growing anger. And as we move through 2019 and the motion of confidence in, in Owen Murphy and the fact that Fianna Fáil abstained, that just once again solidified the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael were somewhat in this together, that they were implicitly supporting each other and a minister which people were losing um, confidence in, even though he did just barely survive um, that vote, which brings us to the election um, and just people just felt completely uninspired by the 2020 general election, just felt it was boring. They didn't even bother changing the the, the Ireland for All campaign name, uh, the manifesto, um, and that issues came up which completely took them by surprise. The pensions issue is a big one. Um, you know, they were very much proposing transition payments where Sinn Féin were much more stronger. And even if people didn't believe what was put to me, people didn't really believe that Sinn Féin had the money. They almost didn't mind because it was something different and it was a much stronger, much stronger message. So that came up as 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 um, a major issue. And then, look, we know we can go into kind of what happened last summer has had huge ramifications, which when I'm talking about last summer, I mean 
after the general election. We know there's a pandemic that changed things. Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael going with Greens, etc., etc. We know that. And and the Michal Martin's choice of ministerships throughout last summer, have ha- that has had major ramifications. And one of the th- things that people keep saying to me in Fianna Fáil, why did we pick, why did we insist on the departments of health and you know the the difficult departments um and education why didn't we go for something like justice or other departments uh, that maybe we could have maybe take a better news story out of rather than being in the eye of of every single storm um and look we know kind of a lot of what played out last summer um and we know we're all very aware of the lockdown that we're still in and the fact that the vaccine story the vaccine um, rollout is not going to plan. Uh, And the one thing that really struck me is that whatever people are saying about what should we do in the future, they're very clear in the party that the next 10 to 12 weeks are really crucial for Micheál Martin and that he has tied up a huge amount of political capital in this programme and in it going right. And if it goes wrong um, and if, you know, the, the reopening plan and people's hopes are dashed and we stay in this lockdown for longer... And the party slips and slips and slips down the polls, and they are so painfully, painfully aware of the polls. And um, then that's when we talk about the conversation about the future. So there's a very long answer to your very short question. I know that's always the way it should be, ideally. You know, um, as Pat Leahy, you know, uh, he'll, he'll agree with you. <laughs> Listening to Jen there, though, um, Jack, it, it, I mean, it's clear, obviously, the problems of the party run much deeper than the leadership. But still, I look at I look at Michal Martin sometimes and uh, he reminds me of other political figures of the past who decide, perhaps sometimes for good reason, that their personal programme is more important than the future of the party. That may be a little unfair to Michal Martin, given that he put in a huge amount of hard and thankless work in reviving Fianna Fáil in the, in the post-2011 uh, years. <clears throat> but you look at him now and I'm not sure that you know the 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 future of Fianna Fáil is the is the first item on his agenda, and there might be a sense within the party that that that's a problem too. Yeah, and look, I think that you know if you were to be kind of hyper cynical about it, and some people are this cynical about it, you would say that the thing that motivated Michal Martin more than anything else was the fear that he would be the first Fianna Fáil leader not to become Taoiseach, and the upshot of the various political manoeuvrings that um, led him to the Taoiseach's office may be that he would be the last Fianna Fáil leader, at least for a while, to be Taoiseach if it doesn't go well. But I think it's, it's worth probing a little deeper, Michal Martin, and the kind of uh, the, the, the stance, expectations and outlook that Fianna Fáil probably have for their time in government and how that relates to the deeper, more profound questions about identity and function that the party has within Irish politics that we talked about already. Um, and I think that... If I if like I'm kind of abstracting this a little bit, but Jen made the point about what departments Fianna Fáil took when they went into government. It's health, housing, and education. It's the problem departments, but they are also the departments that you might take up the reins at if you believed that there was a kind of shift in a political paradigm coming, that the pendulum was swinging post crash, post economic crash, and post pandemic back towards a kind of more social democratic mode of government, of a, a bigger role for the state in providing solutions or, 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 or policies in those big departments that make a big difference to people on the ground. And if you felt that that was a way in which you might play a more meaningful role in Irish political life and Irish political choice going forward. Um, the problem is that you kind of have to get over 
the hump of the pandemic to start pushing through those kind of policies and to start adopting that role. And the question is really whether the, the, the barrier and the hurdle will be too big. Because I do think that, you know, we are heading to, to a place where the state will be larger after the pandemic and that the state will play probably a more active role in those those areas. And if Fianna Fáil can situate itself there and if it can, if it can you know, hatch a bunch of policies in childcare, education, housing, health that are seen to work and take ownership of those policies, there could be a political dividend in a kind of Fianna Fáil redux where they are all things to all people and they are identified in the in the in the in the popular mind and in political choice with an effective system of state provision for ordinary people. I think that's kind of the long term plan. But whether whether yeah. they can actually get to implement it is another thing entirely. Yeah, you can probably hear the doubt in my voice there, there, Jenna. Maybe maybe just a, a last question to you on this then, because I was struck in your piece really by how, frankly, unimpressive most of the answers were given to that question of how how do you get out of this fix? And there was kind of fairly fairly shallow things, although you know they probably have some importance, like having a Dublin leader rather than somebody from outside Dublin because they 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 were under political their particular electoral pressures there. But I mean, you mentioned at the start that the lack of discipline within the party, and in the piece you talk about you know one of the reservoirs of of um, of power that they still have left is that relatively successful council elections in 2019. And I look at that and I look at the way the people in your interview are talking and I think maybe one way in which political parties decay and maybe die in Ireland in particular due to our electoral system is they become ultimately just a bunch of independents without a coherent idea to to pull them all together. And increasingly Fianna Fáil looks like that to me. Yeah, I can totally understand that. And that goes to kind of the heart of what the fears are in the party, which is that it's becoming irrelevant. You know, one of the examples that was given to me was the recent debate on Claire Byrne Live between uh, Leo Varadkar, Mary Lou MacDonald and Michal Martin, where they were talking about, you know, the approach to United Ireland. And they kept referencing, a couple of people referenced the fact that the debate was mainly held between Leo Varadkar and Mary Lou MacDonald and at least the lion's share of the attention afterwards uh, and during it in social media or people who were chatting about it was between those two. And there was a real feeling of we are the, the most Republican Party, you know, we should be out in front. It should be us saying that, you know, here's our policies and they're very clear. And instead, the, the big fear in Fianna Fáil is that actually Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael have much stronger policies when it comes to a united Ireland. And they don't like that. They, like the, A lot of people in the party think that goes against some of their, their most core beliefs and their most core raison d'etre, if you, if, if you like. Um, and this idea of the approach to the North will become something bigger and bigger as time goes on for the party. There's a real push from inside to perhaps be a little bit less woolly. So some people said to me, Michal Maran's shared island unit is just a little bit too vague. It's just a little bit too hard to grasp. You know, the idea of a border poll in X amount of time is easy to understand. Now, having said that, given what's happened in the North in the last couple of days and weeks, there was also a view that, well, is this not the exact right approach? You go in there and you say, well, you know, we think 52% of people want this, therefore we're going to plough ahead and that's that. And that'll be a disaster uh, given the sensitivities involved and that actually Michal Martin will be vindicated in the end in, in his approach. It doesn't take away from the fact that the party don't believe, they, they the vast majority of people I spoke to just don't think it's enough and they don't think that their credentials are strong enough uh, on this and that they should be. Um, and then I suppose the other issue as well is 
a lot of people seem to think that an, a new leader is the main issue. And they, once they can get a new leader, they can, you know, chart a new path forwards. But it really struck me from talking to the various TDs that they not only do they not agree on candidates for a future leader, uh, they have no idea um, if those candidates want to go for it themselves. Um, and, you know, Jim O'Callaghan is someone we've mentioned on this podcast a good few times as somebody who will be out in front. And I talked to people who support him and they were very much saying he's a bit, you know, he's a bit in, he's a bit out. You know, we're always going to have to go and cajole him and say, come on, Jim, you can do this. You know, the party wants you to do it. You know, I, I can guarantee you I've done a mental tally in my head and this is how many people will support you. And then I ring up someone else in the party and they say, not. Nah, no, we're not going to, we're not going to go for Jim. Sure, what would Jim do? What are his big ideas? Yes, he had a blueprint for the North, but, you know, that's not a Fianna Fáil policy. No, really who you should be looking at is Michael McGrath. And then, you know, you talk to people who support Michael McGrath and they say, no, Michael McGrath, I don't know, he's a bit Michal Martin-ish, so I wouldn't say Michael McGrath. And you go around and around in this circle where everybody's in, nobody's in, even the people who are in are kind of out. So even the leadership idea and the idea that this person is going to come in, revitalize the party, inspire a whole generation is just wrong. It's completely wrong. Um, and they haven't got their act together in that. So to my mind, people talking about 50-50 uh, in favor of Michal Martin staying or 60-40, depending on who you talk to, sounds great. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. That's where people's thinking is at. But nobody has thought about what happens then. And how does that look when you're in the middle of a pandemic when people are losing their lives and we have huge issues uh, at place. And, and in fairness, there were people who said to me, don't ask me these questions. I'm not going to answer. The public will think we're navel gazing and we're going to get battered and it'll be all your fault. But this is just reflective. I think my last thing I'll say about it is that the whole thing is discordant and confused and just a little bit all over the place. I'd like to apologise to any members of Fianna Fáil listening for totally spoiling their day. Uh, we'll try not to do it next week, but I think Jennifer you did it very effectively there. <laughs> Listen, we are going to leave it there. Thanks very sorry. much to, to Jenna, to Jack. Thanks also to Jennifer Ryan, our producer and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you very soon. But until then, do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com. And until the next time, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>